Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Terry Wallace. Affectionately known as Plough, Terry Wallace was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 2018. In a truly remarkable playing career, Terry played 254 VFL-AFL games for Hawthorne, Richmond and Footscray, also kicking 123 goals in the process. As a tenacious inside midfielder, Plough won two best and fairest at the Hawks, including in the 1983 Premiership year, as well as winning two best and fairest with the Dogs in the late 80s. After his playing days were over, Terry soon embarked on an impressive coaching career, firstly as the senior coach of the Western Bulldogs from 1996 to 2002, where Plough took the Doggies to consecutive preliminary finals in 1997 and 1998, to then coaching Richmond in 99 games from 2005 to 2009. Following the end of his coaching career, Plough then forged a niche in the media as the list manager and only called time on his 43-year involvement in playing, coaching and media work after the 2020 season. We were very lucky to have Terry on the show, considering it was his first media outing since pulling up stumps last year. In our chat with Terry, we talk about how he skyrocketed the dogs from second last to a preliminary final in 12 months, the many examples of innovation that he brought to the industry, as well as his reflections on his time at Punt Road. This episode is proudly brought to you by Ferox Cricket, an ICC-endorsed and preferred brand of both international players and cricketers in clubland alike. Ferox Cricket supplies elite quality cricket gear at affordable prices. Contact Kane and the Ferox team on Facebook or Instagram. Alrighty, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Terry Wallace. Well, thanks very much, Mitch. It's a pleasure to uh, to be along. I seem to have a bit more time on my hands these days to be able to do these things. You sort of uh, alluded there briefly about having more time on your hands. You're involved in footy for over 40 years, playing, coaching and commentating, an illustrious career in, in football. Uh, but 2021 has been your first year away from the hustle and bustle of the game. What's life like on the other side of footy there for you? Well, it sort of hasn't gone exactly to plan. I mean, uh, I took my uh, situation about two years out where I thought, you know, if I get to the end of uh, last year, that might just about see me out. And it was for a few reasons. There was a few other things I sort of still want to do uh, to do. And travel was actually, you know, part of uh, <laughs> and that I'd never really been able to do a European summer or anything like that. So yeah. while I was still uh, fit and healthy enough, I, you know, I wanted to do a few other bits and pieces, but as much as anything, I mean, the 43-year journey, and it was pretty much balanced, the, the coaching, well, playing for 14, coaching for 16 or 17, media for uh, the other lot, it's pretty balanced into the three different uh, different areas, and I just thought maybe it was time, and there were so many good young commentators coming through, I just thought it was their time as well, and you know, you look at the moment, and you know, blokes like Lee Montagna, a lot of the secure boys, yeah. isn't it? You know, Rewalt, uh, Del Sano doing a really good job. Then you've got obviously, uh, um, you know, Lewis who's uh, who's come through as well, John O'Brown. So there's quite a few of those, uh, that younger brigade that's come through. And I, I, I just sort of saw it as being their time. There is a really great wave of young talent in the media. 
Your playing career was remarkable. 254 games for the Hawks, Tigers and, and Dogs. Three premierships, four BNFs. Um, you played under some illustrious coaches too, David Park and Alan Jeans and Mick Malthouse, to name a few. I'm interested in how you compare these three coaches and whether any of their traits, I guess, fed into your own philosophies later in your coaching career. Well, I think you you take something off everything or you know, if you're open-minded enough, you should be taking something off uh, every person that you come in contact with and, and learn from. And yeah, certainly I, I was never a follow-the-leader uh, type person. I, I wanted to have my own thoughts and my own ways to uh, to do things, but that still doesn't mean that you, you, know, you don't uh, soak in every single thing that you can uh, you know, get your hands on, whether that be from your sport or from from other sports. So the three guys that you just spoke about in particular, you know, they had the, the bulk of my uh, my time as a player. David Park and really innovative, uh, you know, uh, a phys ed teacher did things a lot differently to what a lot of the other uh, coaches were doing at the time. I think he was a lot more involved I mean to the degree if you can imagine it nowadays where you play a game on a Saturday afternoon by the time that we arrived to training on the Sunday morning he would have a dossier handwritten for every one of his uh, his players from yeah. the, the game before so that's all handwritten stuff I mean, wow. nowadays you know it's a lot easier to, to do that stuff but that was the dedication that he was putting in, in at the time so where a lot of others were part-time they had other jobs um, even though he had another job he made his coaching you know, really you know, full-time and you know, he was just you know, ahead of his time. Alan Jeans uh, knew people, understood people. I mean obviously a senior sergeant uh, in the police force you have to have some sort of knowledge of uh, what you're dealing with with uh, the human psyche but uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, very much in knowing and understanding each individual and what made them tick, uh, how we can get more out of them, uh, the, the groups that they uh, they were in. They used to always sort of say that the best way to get organised was when you first get to any club, hold a barbecue. It might sound very strange, yeah. but he sort of said, you watch, you watch at the barbecue, he sort of said, every, uh, every player within the group will go to their own little groups. So it might be the, the punters uh, hanging around over one area, uh, the drinkers are over over another area. I'm going back a you know, <laughs> different era. But uh, the ones who are a little bit nerdy will go into their own area. He sort of said they never ever held an election, but you know, just watching for a little while, and you could always tell that one of them was the leader of each of those particular groups. So his idea was if I get the leader in control and I uh, have a good relationship with the leader, he'll keep the rest of them in control. And yeah. so that was just sort of his thinking. So he was always looking at um, the individuals in the group dynamic. So I think that that was his major, major play. Technically, he was you know, still you know, pretty strong. He was the first one to really bring in uh, what was called the running game back in that, uh, that stage where it was a much more free-flowing uh, style of play than would have been sort of seen probably in the eras uh, before that. And then uh, Mick Moldhouse, well, he was great for me because it was my last couple of uh, – I had my last few years – with, uh, with Mick uh, before he moved on to the West Coast Eagles. And yeah. I was a very much a senior player at that stage. So he was good in picking my brain to be able to uh, sort of see what I'd learned along my journey. And also, I mean, he was a strong, strong-willed person in his own right. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought he was an outstanding coach. He'd come from the Alan Jeans school all the way back from St Kilda before he went to, uh, to Richmond. So 
he had a fair sort of background in the same sort of uh, things that I'd been brought up and coached with. Uh, he had been coached exactly the same way. So, yeah, we were able to sort of uh, think alike for a lot of the time. And, you know, strength of conviction, relationships and innovation seem to be some themes that, you know, those three coaches displayed. And I'm sure you would have had to put those skills to the fore after replacing Alan Joyce as the Bulldogs coach midway through 96. But you immediately turned the doggies around to to feature in consecutive prelim finals in 97, 98. What are some of the things that you prioritised when you got the role to lead to such a quick turnaround in the doggies' fortunes? Well, the year that I took over, I mean, I did the last 10 games of that uh, of that season. Uh, I'd been fortunate enough to win a you know, reserves premiership a couple of years earlier uh, than that. But I'd been around the club for long enough to know that I thought there was more ability in the playing group than what they were sort of showing at the time. So from the day that I, I got the position, what I actually did was I, I went and got every statistic I could get my hands on from these players and where they'd been, whether it was junior, best and fairest, what their careers had looked like up until that stage where we were at at that time. And I filled our meeting room with whiteboards, uh, the main whiteboard, but uh, we rolled in a few other whiteboards with just how many best and fairest, how many players had played for Victoria, whether that's junior level or wherever ever it was, and just filled the room with this is who you are. Yeah, the latter at the moment might sort of say 15, but this is who I think you are and I think that you guys have got to know and understand that that's the ability that's in the room and we need to be able to work on a way to get our confidence back to a stage where we can compete with the absolute best in the uh, in the competition because you know, what we're seeing in this room shows us that that has the ability to be able to compete with anyone and why it's got lost where we've been, uh, who knows, but uh, that doesn't matter. What matters is what we do about it from now on. So what I tried to do is rebuild the confidence of the group as quickly as what I possibly could. The other side of that was uh, we were a club that were lowly, didn't have a big membership, were always sort of right on the edge of whether we were going to go under or uh, or make it through. Uh, that was always sort of around there. So media-wise, the club didn't get any. <laughs> yeah. The only time that media basically come down to the written oval was if a coach was going to get the sack. And that was, <laughs> that was about it. So what we tried to do as well at exactly the same time, so we're building them up, but we're also trying to put some pressure on them to perform. So we opened up our doors to the media, just 100%, you know, come to any training session, yeah. the players are always available. We went out, you know, on a limb to sort of say at the end of that year, my interim year, going into 97, that, uh, you know, we stood up in front of a, a media luncheon and said that we were going to make the eight. We were virtually laughed out of the lunch. But uh, <laughs> so we opened ourselves up completely. But to me, I, I sort of thought, well, if we're going to make big, bold statements and we're going to be out there and we're going to be confronted by the uh, by the press all the time, we've got to live that and we've got to live exactly what we've sort of uh, suggested we, we could possibly do with this competition. And That's sort of the pathway that we, uh, we went down. In exactly the same point of time, I've always believed that I sort of had a, a business background myself when I come back into the coaching ranks. Yep. I'd been 10 years as uh, state sales manager 
for Sky Channel, which is a packer organisation uh, working out of GDV9. And I always believed that best practice methods, looking at what everyone else was doing, was a good idea, but it wasn't the sole way to go. And I still see it even today with some young coaches that they have a look at what the best are doing and they try to follow the best. But how do you ever catch up with the best if yeah. that's the way going about it? Because, yeah, they're going to keep adding layers onto what they're doing at exactly the same time as what you're trying to follow what they've done in the past. So that wasn't the way for me to go. I wanted to sort of look laterally. And um, at the time, North Melbourne was the best side. Uh, they won it in 96. My theory was that everyone would follow exactly what North had done. And we wanted to go exactly the opposite to what North had done and sort of see whether we could make up some ground that way. So that particular year, yeah, and it happens every year. Yeah, the Premier's uh, and you're just going to look at Hawthorne with Clarko. And recent times it's been uh, Dimmer Hardwick with, you know, with the Tigers. Everyone tries to sort of absolutely tear apart what they've been doing and add that to their, uh, their game. Hence why you get so many of Clarko's disciples going to other clubs because everyone's trying to pinch a bit of that winning action. I don't always think that works. And, uh, you know, clearly we've got a lot of coaches that are senior coaches now that have come from uh, from Hawthorne. Some some have been successful, some haven't been successful. And it doesn't always guarantee that that's going to be the way that it uh, plays out. So North in this particular year in 96, all talk was about how they got themselves absolutely to peak and we see that in a lot of uh, Olympic sports, which we've just watched over recent times. But, yeah, the peak right at, at the September period and so go really, really slow almost through the summer and then start to peak it up. Well, I, I thought to myself, you're going to have 15 other clubs do exactly the same trying to follow what North did. Mm. So let's us go the other way. If they're all going to start slow, we're going to start in October. We're going to have balls out at the very, very first training session back then, most teams you know, did all their athletic stuff prior to Christmas, yep. not so much uh, you know, with the footies. So we went the polar opposite to what everyone else went to see whether we could get a jump on them, which is exactly what happened. And then you know, that confidence sort of starts to grow in your, in your group and you're, you're off and going. But I, I just sense that if we had tried to do what they were doing, we might have never kick-started ourselves in the first place. The AFL's become, and probably always has been, just judging from what you're saying there, a copycat league, you know, where you're trying to imitate what the, what the best teams are doing and you're never going to do it as well as they do because they're the, they're the originators of that idea and, uh, you know, they've been working on it for longer than opposition teams. So that makes perfect sense. And I think you touched on expectations earlier in that answer as well. And there's that famous I'll spew up video that still uh, does the rounds today. But during that that little clip that you gave that group, you sort of mentioned expectations around uh, this group is capable. So you, you kind of balance that spray quite well. Is the spray a, a bit of a dying art, do you think? Or is there still a place with, I guess, the more sensitive athletes in the modern game to be able to deliver that little clip when necessary? Yeah, well, that uh, that little quote of spew up, I don't think it's ever going to leave no. me. Uh, that'll haunt <laughs> me for my life. But uh, yeah, so just a little bit of context very quickly. As much as what it's a spray and you know, other people can watch it at any stage that they want, but it was still controlled because uh, I had a message that I had to try to sell. So if you actually go through it, there's highs and there's lows in there. So it may seem like you're completely out of control, but I, I still thought 
there was a, a message to get across. And the message was that uh, going back to what we'd said just prior, that I believe that the group were good enough. I, at times I just didn't know whether they had the self-belief in themselves at, at that period of time. So mine was the first quarter of that game was as bad as what we could possibly play. We played brilliantly for three quarters. We lost a, you know, a game and we lost another opportunity. And, you know, that if we play like the three quarters, you know, we, uh, we can compete with anyone. If we play like the first quarter, we're not going to compete at all. So that was the point of the moment. And uh, as I sort of said, I, I think it resonated with that group of, you know, from that stage onwards, and that was in my uh, was in my interim yeah. year prior to sort of the, the ninety seven where we kicked back from fifteen to third. We started making ground from from that time onwards, and you know, finished the year a lot stronger. And then obviously went into the next year. The question you asked, well, from the time that I left the Bulldogs to even two year olds going into the third year, three years later, uh, going to Richmond, I had noticed a quantum change in the attitude and approach you had to have with players even in that period of time. Now, probably the Richmond boys will sort of say I didn't take note as much as what I should have, <laughs> and it's certainly um, there's still a little bit of the you know, the old school stuff with me. As I've watched over now a 15-year period, it's flipped 100%. Is there a place for the spray? Yep, but I think it's about once or twice a year. I think that if you're using it any more than that, you'll just get blank stares, you know, from the people that sort of looking back at you and uh, they won't have any impact. If you are with them, with them, with them, and then every now and then the wake-up call comes, I think that that still can have a, uh, certainly have an impact. But you've got to be careful. I mean, you know, going back 20 years ago, there was always some players that I knew that I could go as hard as what I would like or, you know, want to go with them and then have a chat to them afterwards and sort of say, look, you know, I did that as much for the group as anything else. And I knew, one, I'd get the right response from them at the time. Let's say it was a half-time spray. Yep. Uh, I knew they'd gone to it at the time, but I knew they'd take it okay afterwards. Others, you gave them a similar spray and 20 years down the track now, they still haven't forgiven you uh, for it, um, you know, up till now. So, I mean, you just have to be careful and you've got to know that's where coaches have got to spend enough time and know that the, the people that they're dealing with to know who needs the bunk up and, you know, you know who, who you can be a little bit firmer with. Yeah, it comes back to knowing your group and knowing your players. And that group through 97 and 98 went so close. Perhaps if a certain goal umpire paid a little bit more attention in 97 to Libba's shot on goal, might have been a different story. But were there any other missing ingredients, do you think, that might have just got that group closer to the panacea? Well, it was a, yeah, it was a big turnaround. You know, if, uh, as we said, 15 third in one year and then prelim final the next year. Never really looked like it the, uh, the next year in that prelim. Uh, I just get the sense in the second prelim that everyone thought, including our, our players, thought that it was just going to happen because... You know, it was our, our turn for revenge or, and, you know, they jumped us and we, we never, ever got settled into the into the second game. I mean, clearly the, the 97 was the opportunity and an opportunity lost. We lost two players to suspension in the last game of the season. That was not ideal and uh, neither of them got back for the, uh, for the preliminary final. So that hurt us. The biggest thing that hurt us was I, I just don't think we handled the occasion 
as well as what we possibly could have in the last quarter or certainly the last half of that preliminary final. And that's partially because none of us had been there before. I'd been there as a player, but you know, I was obviously a very young coach up against Malcolm Blight, who had been in a similar situation of losing grand finals and having losing you know, opportunities. And I suppose the cover from behind fact that you, you know, you're rolling the dice a little bit more as well. There's a little bit more tension on the side that's in front and trying to hold on. But probably two things. I didn't think our players handled the final quarter. We kicked a 0-6 in the last quarter of that preliminary final, yeah. you know, ran into open goals, uh, fumbled the ball in front of goals. So we had so many opportunities to uh, to be able to get a hold of things in that last quarter and couldn't do so. I would have thought one thing I would change myself, certainly the way that I spoke to the playing group at uh, three-quarter time. I spoke more about uh, the history uh, and what it would mean to all the people up in the stands and what it would mean to this group. And I think it was overwhelming okay. for the group at the time. I think it just become too big of a burden for them to wear. We all hear coaches talk about process-driven, but it, it is so right. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I go and speak to you know, sales groups. Everyone's got to have a target, you know, and for us, I mean, you, you're winning or losing is your target. Your ladder position's a target. So everyone's got targets. But shoving the target down the throat of the person isn't necessarily going to make them hit the target any better than what it is. Working on the process of of what it is, you know, if you're going to sell 30 cars a month, you know, if you're only on 10 and halfway to the month, work work on what it is that gets you to sell the cars, what it is that, you know, that has you having the ability to sell over and above. Geez, you're behind behind your ranking, you know, you've got 20 more to get in the next. All that does is puts pressure on people. And going back to myself, my learnings from from that day was that if I had spoken, we were four goals up at three-quarter time, if I had spoken more about how the process was going to work, the two or three goals that we needed to kick or the defensive aspects of, you know, uh, holding a a lead would have helped us enormously, I think, on being able to just handle the moment a little bit better than what we perhaps did at the time. And I think that that you know, almost panic set through the camp a little bit. And uh, you know, as the points rolled on in the last quarter, the panic rose and it just we just didn't handle the occasion and obviously uh, got beaten. But it's one that lives with you forever. Yes, it was a goal. It, I mean, I've got a, a son that's a field umpire in the AFL at the yeah. moment. Uh, no one's going to bat 100%. You, know, you hope it doesn't happen to you in a preliminary final and cost you a, a, a grand final spot, but it's going to happen at, at some stage, unfortunately. And, uh, yeah, that was just our lot and seemed to be the uh, the way that the history wrote itself out. It was certainly one of the more well-celebrated points. That's uh, I'm sure Liver was pretty confident as it was sailing off his boot there. But I think, you know, we hear press conferences from coaches and they, they drum out the old cliches around process and, and we, we roll our eyes at times, but I think your point there is it, is it really does stand up under pressure process and something we need to keep advocating to our players for sure. It's boring. I, I understand all of that. But when you just put it into context, what are coaches, what are people looking for from their bosses? What are players looking for from their coaches? All they want is a way, number one, to perform better themselves 
and any assistance that they can get from the people around them and the leaders around them to be able to perform better. And the, the other side of that is anything that can help them have more opportunity to, to win. So we talked about sprays before. Tell me what the point of going in at half time and giving an almighty burst to the playing group versus, okay, this is what hasn't worked for us. This is what you've done well. This is what hasn't worked for us at this point of time. I'm telling you if we do X, Y, and Z in the next hour of play, we can turn around our results that we've got currently because we can see currently that this is why these things aren't working. You're actually giving them directive. You're giving them tools to go back out and battle the battle for the next hour. I don't know whether you know, just yelling at them gives them those, those no. uh, abilities and tools to be able to use. Uh, spot on. It's about being constructive, I think, in those moments rather than overly emotional. I'll put up my hand to, be, you know, to say that, you know, my, my players would say, you know, I, I've been as an emotional coach as any out there, but the, the longer you're out of it and the longer you, you, you look at it, you sit there and go, a lot of it was rubbish. <laughs> like, and <laughs> and I, I can remember taking away the pre-match speech from the players. We did all our, our, our stuff prior to game day and we would have one little five-minute meeting when the players had just arrived just to sort of see whether everything that we'd spoken about the day before or two days prior uh, had settled with them okay and that was it. We didn't no meeting, no rah-rah meeting just before the game. That was the last uh, meeting because a lot of the times when they're emotionally high, they actually play worse. Mm. And, you know, when, they're, when they're calm and considered and understand what needs to be done, I, I think half the time they play better that way. That overly heightened state you know, certainly affects decision-making, I would have thought. And one of the games that I really is really vivid in my childhood, and I'm a massive Carlton fan, but the year 2000, I was playing at the Hillside Footy Club and out in the western suburbs and out in the west, you're either a Bombers supporter or a Bulldogs supporter usually. And uh, those two teams clashed in around 21 of the 2000 season where the Bombers were 20 and zip at that time. And you engaged some tactics which probably hadn't been seen before with, with the flood. What was the brainchild behind this idea? And were these tactics a, a bit of a forerunner for what was to follow in the ensuing years of AFL footy? It was interesting, uh, just on your, your last part of it uh, first, was when that was put in place in 2000, a few weeks later was the Olympic Games. And it was amazing how many senior coaches, assistant coaches, went up to Sydney for the Olympics and went and had a look at all the transition sports from that stage on. Oh. So it, I think there's no doubt it was a forerunner I think it was coming anyway. You know, uh, Rodney Eade, when he was coaching Sydney, he had dabbled in a few uh, bits and pieces as well. So I think it was on the horizon. What basically happened for a long, long period of time was that coaches were part-time. And, you know, we spoke about Alan Jeans before, senior sergeant of the police force, you know, would arrive at training at four o'clock and get themselves organised. You know, sure, he would have been doing some stuff through the day to be, ready and raring to go by the time that he arrived. But yep. there wasn't a, a lot of time to look at how the game was being played and how it perhaps could be played differently. So for 100 years, it just basically was the game that it was. 
And then once the coaches become full-time, for better or for worse, and there'll be a lot of people out there that say it's uh, a lot worse, but we started looking at transition sports and how they were conducting themselves and how they would play, how they would set up the ground, how that they would uh, they would play that way. And, and so we totally looked at it from a, a different point of view. I think the Bulldogs, even though they were you know, one of the poorer clubs in the competition, were pretty well advanced in you know, setting themselves to go and look overseas at other sports and have a look at what could be done differently and just sort of see whether we could get any advantage from doing that. And in one of those trips, I went across and uh, went to the Denver Broncos first. That was the year uh, that they went on to uh, to win the Super Bowl. John Elway was their uh, famous quarterback at the time and got bits and pieces. You know, we were looking at strength and conditioning, how they're training their athletes, even to the degree of what they were doing off-field, how they were integrating with the, um, the communities and, and playing things out that way. And I went eventually down to Jacksonville Jaguars and we did exactly the same thing. We spent about a week there. But on game day, uh, they have all the, uh, the trailer park sort of areas outside, barbecues basically, where while the players are warming up, there's no one in the stadium. They're all out you know, partying and, and doing what they're, they're doing in the surrounds outside the stadium. And we were in and uh, had availability of you know, being able to go in the, the change rooms where the guys were going out onto the, the field of play. And uh, you know, one of the things that come from that was the, the pre-match warm-up uh, come from exactly uh, that. I went out in the ground and saw these guys you know, warming up, you know, you've got the quarterback, you know, really throwing his arm in to make sure that that was right. You've got the wide receivers, you know, charging and doing their sprint work down the ground. And I sort of thought to myself, geez, we're warming up in little rooms, trying to run up and down on the spot. We're yeah. doing hammies at the games. So that part was taken back for the pre-match warm-up. When I was at Denver, I asked their coaches, would you have a look? We, we spent probably an hour and a half watching video of our game and the, the way it was played. And I explained to them about, you know, 18 on the ground at a time and the positional uh, manner in which the game was played. I sort of said to them, I want you guys to have a look at how you would play it, um, how you would set up the ground yourselves if you were coaching and, uh, and being involved in our game. Uh, it was quite amazing that they gridded our ground uh, where they sort of said, well, basically we will have two-thirds of the players behind the football and so what we'll do is we'll give you the wide we'll give you the wide spaces right on to, towards the boundary line but we're going to be heavily zoned through the back half of the ground not many players forward of the ball and we're going to get the ball back off the opposition they're not going to be able to get through for a score we're going to be able to get the ball back and we'll transition the play uh, back down the ground the other way from there like we see with hockey so that got me thinking and I sort of come back, you know, we had a good discussion about it. We come back and I said, I'm going to trial this. And I went into a pre-season and we, we actually gridded, painted, gridded up the right. ground and painted ground in the pre-season. Uh, we played a couple of trial games. It was inconclusive. You know, we played one trial game that was blowing a gale one direction, so we really couldn't get much of a line on whether it would work or it wouldn't work, you know, in uh, other conditions. So we tried it two or three times and we shelved it. We just put it on the shelf and sort of said, not enough evidence one way or another to go with it. We might have a, we might have a look at it over another pre-season. 
Then we got to the uh, the Essendon game, and they were flying. They beating everyone. I yeah. just beating everyone. They beating everyone by ten to twelve goals. Yeah. And, uh, won the grand final by over ten goals that year. So we uh, went to the media and said we were going to have a uh, have a quiet week on the track, just do a bit, a little bit of skill training. We were going to treat this like a final, and in finals, all you just do is freshen the players up. But they didn't know that we were jumping in our cars after we finished that little warm-up session and we were driving down to Werribee where we had Werribee's ground painted and gridded up. Werribee were our affiliates, uh, where our reserves players were playing at the time. So we had the Werribee ground painted up into grids and practice all week about playing this defensive style of game and because we had about four or five of our best players out. So yeah. when we went to match first up, we were sitting there going, we're going to play, you know, uh, Lindsay Gilby playing his second or third game. He's going to be playing on Mark McCurry, who's mm. starring. We're going to have uh, Mitch Hahn in his fourth or fifth game of footy playing on James Hurd. <laughs> we just couldn't beat him with, yeah, right. you know, the one-on-one. So we, uh, we just pulled a surprise attack. And uh, look, it, it worked on, on the day. It was a bit of rope-a-dope because we played into the hands. I think it was the highest ever inside 50 count one way versus the other way. I mean, they just kept controlling the ball and pummeling it in, pummeling it in. But you know, we had so many players back that they couldn't score. But they were doing all the work because you know, they were trying to make the play and push the play where we were sitting back, call it zone defence in, uh, in basketball. We were sort of sitting back in our zone having done no work at all. Now, they led by about two goals coming into the later part of – or sorry, the earlier part to mid part of the last quarter. But we had always told our players, like Roper Dope, uh, we were going to release them at some stage. And when the message came out to release, we're going after them at a million miles an hour. That's when we're going to use the energy that we'd saved and we were going to play a completely offensive game for the last 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, we'd stay close enough with them with this defence, 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 and then flipped it the other way and got the result in the, uh, in the end. Uh, would it hold up? No, it wouldn't because you're just giving too much opposition ball use. Yep. But what that was the forerunner to was the forward press. So other coaches, Ross Lyon being one of them, sort of said, okay, well, we've seen this where they've pressed backwards. What happens if we enclose the ground, we close down the ground and we, we take that press all the way forward yep. and play it in our half of the ground now when they're trying to move the ball out of the defensive area, hence what we've got in modern footy. I love the question, how would you play our game? I mean, that's just such a pure question for people who have no prior knowledge of, of footy. And, and to get that as the stimulus for, for that idea is, that's a really great story, I think, and uh, how the game's evolved since then as well. You see your 90s footy on Fox footy sometimes, you think, oh, geez, I'd love to see the one-on-one battles and big full forward leading out of the goal square, but there's still um, many great aspects of, of our modern game. Just before we roll on, yeah. uh, I just want to – Alistair Clark said a, a rap, a real rap. I mean, he doesn't need a rap. He's a four-time yeah. uh, premiership uh, coach. We all know that. But just to show how that lateral thinking can actually change things. Now, it didn't win us you – know, when I was at the Bulldogs, it didn't win us a flag, but it got us damn close on a couple of occasions. Alistair Clarkson, up until – their premiership in 2008, virtually every premiership that had been won had been won by ball movement and it had been won by yeah, taking the ball from stoppage 
and being able to work the ball from stoppage through to score. So every season, scores from stoppage until 2008 was king. Yeah, you win the clearance, you win the stoppages, you win the contest, you win the game, you win the premiership. When Alistair Clarkson came in, he didn't have a great stoppage side. So he had to pick the game apart. And this is the same sort of thing with what we're saying with Ross Lyon, with the, the, the zoning and, uh, you know, and, and the forward press. Clarko sort of said, okay, if we can't win clearance, how do we make sure that we don't get hurt from clearance? Or how can we turn a clearance loss into a win? So he had that zone going behind the clearance. And, you know, it was the first time we had really sort of seen the Clarko's cluster. So they were actually saying, okay, we'll put a bit of pressure on, but we don't really care whether we win the clearance or not. And Richmond haven't been the greatest clearance side of recent years either. But what they've done is they've structured up so that they put enough pressure on at the clearance, structure up behind the clearance to win the ball back at that stage. And they just kept winning the ball back and sending it that back their way. If people think about Hawthorne through that time, he had beautiful users of the ball, beautiful kickers, so that they didn't give the ball back to their opposition once they had retrieved the ball from clearance. And from 2008, right, which Hawthorne won that flag and they won the flag off being able to uh, retrieve the footy from their opposition. So turnovers become king. Turnovers become winners. Turnovers become premiers. Every single premiership that has been won since then, the premiership side has been the turnover kids. And so... Clarko changed the game from being a stoppage game to a turnover game. If uh, if Clarko lobs up at Carlton, I won't be too disgruntled, to be honest. I reckon he's an absolute genius. And uh, the same year that Clarko started at, at the Hawks, you, you moved over to Richmond in 2005. And all undoubtedly, it was a bit of a tumultuous time for you. I think you know, the Tigers managed to rack up 10 wins in 2005, 11 wins in 06, 11 wins in 08. So you weren't a million miles away. And perhaps that's forgotten a little bit. So can you talk us through some of the highs and lows of that Richmond experience and things that you might have done differently if you had your time again? Yeah, it was the haunted ninth period, I think. <laughs> Sometimes you arrive at a place, and this is there'll be a lot of local coaches that it will be exactly the same. Everyone wants to win and everyone wants to have as much success as they can, but sometimes you are trying to do things that are going to set up the club for what comes next. Uh, you don't want to be that person. You, you're going to try your best not to be that person, be able to turn and flip it around yeah. quick enough that uh, that you gain uh, the access to, to what's there. When I arrived at Tigerland, it was quite interesting. I, I got back there in 2005. I hadn't been there since, what was it, nine, no, sorry, 80, sorry, 87. Yeah. And the place looked exactly the same. Nothing had changed. So facilities the same. Ground problems uh, where we couldn't get on it with cricket over the summer. Just everything, the, the social club was the same. Everything yeah. was identical. So they had moved on an inch over that whole period of time. And financially, they were battling. And any clubs that have, have been through it, you know, when every cent that the club's got is going into paying off debt over going into football, you'll find your club stagnates and there's been a lot of clubs over over a period of time. So that's what I, I arrived to. So uh, as much as what you wanted to have success, I mean, my first two years, we didn't have a full-time recruiter. So there was a lot of 
issues and a lot of problems that had to be resolved. And, and it took time. You know, it really did take time. And it took energy away from actually just the coaching uh, of the team. And, uh, you know, I always remember when uh, Neil Baum got to Geelong, sort of said, you know, Bobber Thompson needs to spend more time just on his coaching of the team rather than on the whole aspect of what's going on, the broader aspect of the club. And we just didn't have the personnel to be able to do that back at, at that time. But uh, we had to get a few things organised. We had to get uh, cricket off the ground, which was achieved over that period of time. Uh, we had to get a new facility built. And, uh, yeah, I was part of that process of getting the, uh, getting the federal government funding for the Indigenous Centre that is now part of the Putt Road uh, development or redevelopment of the ground. So there was all those aspects that were going to be long-term aspects that were going to help the next coach or the coach afterwards, uh, but weren't necessarily going to get you uh, the win-loss ratio that was going to have you maintain your position over a long period of time. And people will deem success how they like. I still think when I look at the club now, I'm reasonably proud of being a part of some of those things uh, that happen, that they've got their own dedicated facility now, that they're not transient, going to train one uh, night at Gosh's Paddock, the next night you know, going down to Victoria Park. We lost 15 players in one pre-season because we were changing grounds mm. uh, left, right and centre. Virtually every training session was on a different ground with yeah. you know, different hardness, those sort of things. To see players be able to turn up at facilities that were the equal to everyone else in the competition rather than us not having anything, to be able to get the right people in the right spots. As I mentioned, uh, Francis Jackson come on board. I'd spoken to the club. The club, prior to my year arriving, had given away their first round draft pick six years in a row. Six years in a row, their first round wow. draft pick was gone. Some good players, you know, Nathan Brown was one of those, you know, Kane Johnson was one of uh, uh, one of those who ended up captaining the footy club. I think Darren Gasper was, yep. was one of those. Yeah, some, some nice players, but it just didn't work. You know, they didn't develop their own. And I got the stage where I was just sort of said to the club, you know, for your sake, you know, apart from these off-field things, you've got to start getting some good young, high-end young talent into the footy club, develop them, have their supporters watch them play their first game of footy, see them play their 100th, see them play their 200th and then go on to uh, you know, become stars uh, of the team. So our first couple of years, because we didn't have the recruiters, we just picked the wrong blokes yeah. and that hurt. that hurt badly. But I still sit back there now and go, well, in my period of time, Alex Rance come through at that time, All-Australian Best and Fairest winner, Jack Rewalt, three-time Coleman medalist, yeah. you know, BNF winner, All-Australian all come through, Trent Cotchin come through over that period of time, triple premiership uh, captain of the football club, Brownlow medalist, Shane Edwards come through at that time, will play 300 games uh, for the footy club and Dustin Martin was in my last year when I uh, when I got the sack. Uh, they picked up Dustin Martin. So, you know, that, that was the core of taking that group forward and, you know, it still took Dimmer... You know, to get the players to go around those superstars, it still took a, you know, quite a period of time after I went, but I still thought that the skeleton of what they needed for the future was sort of still evolving at that time. So now I'm quite comfortable 
Did it work in my time? No. I always have a laugh about good coaches and bad coaches. I had a pretty good side at the Bulldogs. Yeah. I was a pretty good coach. Uh, I had a pretty ordinary side in the uh, in the days of Richmond. I was a pretty ordinary coach because of that. So players still make coaches. Give a decent coach decent players and he'll get you the results that, that you uh, are looking for. But if you flip it around the other way, we were talking about Clarko before, Clarko's finished uh, the last five years out of finals and you know, still you know, coaching a side that's, what, 14th or 13th on the uh, on the AFL ladder at the moment. So you could be a superstar coach, you still got to have the right cattle to be able to get the job done as well. No doubt about it. I think it's so true. And those players you mentioned, Martin, Cochin, Rewalt, I mean, they've had illustrious careers and you, you played a real role in, in their early development. And I think uh, the facilities aspect, I played cricket against Richmond at Punt Road and there was possums in the roof and holes in the, in the walls and it was a, not an overly pleasant place to to play cricket either. So when the, when the Richmond Cricket Club moved out, I think, yeah, it's probably a, bit, you know, a good result for all. I'll give your, uh, your coaches this little story. This is how far back they were at that stage. Uh, yeah, it's been documented uh, previously, but uh, when I first arrived, you're right, the, uh, the players' uh, social room or meeting room uh, just had possum poo all over and it was nothing. You know, they'd pee through the vents. So if you left any uh, any open books or anything on your desk, you're likely to come in with a bit of a surprise the next day. But we were so broke at the time that I wanted to spruce up the rooms before the players got back for the, uh, for the pre-season. Myself and Brian Royal were down there and we went to the, uh, to the CEO and sort of said, look, can we get some paint to, uh, to paint, you know, and get some painters and just to paint up the, room, the rooms. And they sort of said, one, we haven't got enough money at the moment to get painters in. Two, we haven't actually got enough money to give, get you the paint. So we went to one of our sponsors, club yeah. sponsors. He gave us the paint and myself and Brian Royal put on overalls. This is a senior coach yeah, of an yeah. AFL. Put on overalls and we actually painted the uh, uh, the rooms ourselves. And I can remember sitting there with uh, Choco at one stage and, and sort of saying, do you reckon Mick Moldhouse is doing this over at the Lexus? <laughs> Wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> so I mean, look, yeah, it was just at a bad, bad spot at the time. But once they got all that right, once they got their own ground, got their own facilities, started to develop some, some young players, they were back in the game again. You know, and that was uh, the one thing that their, uh, you know, the, the board management finally got right um, was the fact that put the money back in to, uh, you know, into the footy and all of a sudden, you know, we saw the juggernaut that they become. And that's where Brennan Gale and Peggy O'Neill were, uh, were fantastic at the time at understanding what needed to be done to get it right. No, they've done an incredible job. And your time in the media since leaving Richmond, largely sort of centred on, I guess, list management. That was sort of your point of difference in the media. We, we had a real interest in clubs and how they developed their list. Where did that stem from? Was that just purely based on your two coaching stints? We know that sort of trade week and uh, the national draft gets so much, you know, press these days and so much, so much conversation. Um, how has that sort of interest for you evolved over time? Uh, it, was a, it was about two or threefold. Um, I had a genuine, genuine interest in it because I'd sort of seen – it destroy clubs. I'd seen it you know, have uh, huge impact on turning clubs' fortunes around and you know and winning premierships. The list manager side of things, I think there was hardly a 
I list manager at that stage. But I'd always sort of said that the recruiting aspect of the, of the club, I thought had been at most clubs, had been under-resourced for a long, long period of time. And that you know, if you gave me the choice between a great head of football or a great recruiter or a great coach, even for that matter, versus a great recruiter, I'd take the great recruiter, yeah. take Wellesie down at Geelong, uh, Stephen Wells down at Geelong, to get me the right players in. Uh, we were talking about before, get the right players and then you've got an opportunity of being able to get the right coaches to be able to develop them. Uh, rather than necessarily always the other way around. But so I just thought that that had been under-resourced. And in the media, there was nobody covering that at all. And so one, I had an interest. Two, I thought it was under-resourced. Three, I thought it was undercovered by the media. But from, I suppose, a, a little bit of a selfish point of view, I always thought that once I finished coaching Richmond, I'd be able to step back into the media. I'd done a lot of media roles you know, on the couch and a lot of stuff with uh, 3AW and uh, Fox Footy over a period of time. So I thought I'd be able to get back into one of those positions. What I hadn't really uh, thought about was the fact that I was then perceived as a failure, even though, you know, I'd coached and been involved for over 500 games, you yeah. know, played and coached in over 500 games. You still, your last outing is what everyone sees. And that, uh, you know, the tumultuous sort of finish at the ocean, particularly when you're coaching a big club. And so I was perceived as a failure. So all of a sudden when I knocked on the door of the radio stations, no thanks. Uh, you know, why do we really? want somebody yeah. who couldn't get it done themselves doing it? When I went to the, uh, the TV networks, it was exactly the same way. So I found myself where I thought I had the third part of my journey all set up. It was, it was looking pretty grim and, uh, you know, which other direction was I going to go at that stage? I'd been out of the business world for a long, long time. Most of the people that were involved with Sky Channel and the areas that I'd worked and retired at that sort of stage. So a lot of those doors had closed up as well. And that's where I went. I'm going to have to think out of the, think out of the block here and, uh, and try to think of it in a different manner. And so I was cheeky enough right from the outset to call myself the list manager and set myself up um, on social media, on Twitter, as the list manager. Now, you can imagine some of the early tweets that I was receiving about uh, uh, how I'd managed Richmond's list at the, at the time. They weren't too but I just had to absolutely go out on a limb if I was going to break through the barriers that have been sort of almost put in front of me. And um, that's exactly what I did. I started doing a truckload of work on developing lists, uh, you know, where particular clubs were at, strategies around drafts, about what type of players had work, uh, worked in the past and which ones hadn't, uh, almost the inside mids, you know, as a first round were bulletproof, where if you're going to go for a, a key forward, it's about a 35% chance of working or not. But if you don't go for a key forward, almost second round down, they don't make it. You know, they've got to be high-end high end picks to make. So just doing all, breaking all that sort of stuff down, which no one had, had done. And I was just doing it off my own bat. I was just mainly doing it off social media. Craig Hutchison saw it and liked what I was doing, so he got me involved. Then with him, with Future Stars, all of a sudden the phone started ringing. You know, the Herald Sun say Collingwood were having a bad run. The Herald Sun wanted somebody to have a look at uh, Collingwood's list and just analyse the list. So they'd ring me up to say, can you do an article? 
Yeah, yeah sure, I can do an article for you. And it just started to grow and grow and grow and develop. And uh, I always have a bit of a laugh that I went to the spring carnival uh, one year and all the snide remarks, it was a year straight after I finished Richmond. People always wait until you actually walk past them before they say anything. But yes. all the spot snide remarks were around you know, Richmond and failure and, you know, uh, picking up certain players over other players and all those sort of things. Mm. 12 months later, I had 35,000 followers on Twitter and wandered around. It was a new generation of, of person as well. Uh, wandered around to just, oh, get hey, there's a list manager and it just changed people's mm. perception straight away. So don't think you're ever bottled up into being one thing or having to be one thing. If you think outside the square, there are just other ways to go about it. No one can ever doubt that about you, Terry, in terms of lateral thinking and trying things. I think that's a real, that's proven to be a real strength over your, your career in footy. And just in closing, the AFL coaching landscape is pretty in- intriguing at the moment. There's potentially some movement, you know, with Collingwood on the lookout, obviously, and possibly Carlton and Gold Coast, we don't know yet. Can you see the likes of Alistair Clarkson, Ross Lyon and Nathan Buckley being out of the coaching game for too long? Not really. I mean, uh, they're all talented. I mean, it doesn't matter which way you look at it. You know, some will sort of say, well, you know, uh, Buckley and Lyon you know, haven't won premierships, but gee, they've gone mighty close. And you know, with the right group of players, if you can get that close, you can get closer. I really have that that belief. I mean, I, I sort of sit there and sort of say, well, and it's if, if buts and maybes, but you know, if Liver's goal is a goal, do we go on? Do we win the premiership the uh, you know, the year of '97? So I don't believe that if you haven't won one, that means you can't win one. Yep. Um, you know, we're trialing people who have never been in the system to try to get them to win one. So I'd be going with the, the people who have been damn damn close and have got maturity and experience on their uh, on their side. That's the way I'd be going. Sixty-eight year old Brian Gorgian just won our first mm-hmm. ever basketball or medal, so you can't tell me that Buckley Lion, in particular, still haven't got something to uh, to offer to the competition. Uh, so I see change. Uh, I see probably more change next year. I think it's a fascinating year next year for coaches because there are so many that are either coming out of contract or are in a period where they may have like, a year to go and are at clubs where they've been there for quite some time and if they haven't received the success and the right person's up there and available, you know, that there could be movement that way as well. So I sort of see the next 18 months in the coaching landscape being fascinating. If I could give one bit of advice to the three blokes that we just mentioned, don't take the right, the wrong side just to get back into it. And don't be brazen enough to just think that I'm the man and I'm going to go in there and, and I'll get it right. You still got to have the right people around you. You still got to have the right playing group around you. The one thing that I, if I had one thing that I would have loved to do as a, a, a senior coach, I would have loved to have a squad that had a reasonable starting point. So yeah. I coached Bulldogs when they were fifteenth uh, out of out of sixteen was in the competition at that stage, and I coached Richmond where they lost their last fourteen in a row and were uh, were last. So to come in at rock bottom and try to work it up is a really difficult way. If you can get the right club, if somebody offers you the right keys to the right, uh, shall I say, Ferrari, <laughs> which has been used in free terms before, but, uh, uh, yeah, the right keys to the right Ferrari, 
And I'll leave it on that point. Alan Jeans used to go to his board every single year and say, you give me the right players and I'll give you results. That's all I'd be saying to them. They are good enough as coaches with the right people around them. I think not jumping at the first opportunity, jumping at the best opportunity. And and those coaches have enough credits in the bank to be pretty fussy about what their next venture is. Terry, it's been wonderful having you on. You've been incredibly generous with your time. You're... My, my dad used to watch you in the in the seventies and eighties, and uh, you know he said you're an absolute gun footballer and incredibly brave. And your coaching career, you, you made uh, huge differences to the two, two clubs you coached, particularly the Bulldogs, obviously getting them very close. And as a younger bloke, you know, listening to your work in the media, I've learned a lot across the journey. So it's been a real privilege of mine to chat to you this afternoon. And thanks for being so generous with your time. Thanks, Mitch, and uh, to all the coaches out there, uh, good luck. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult journey and uh, you know, somebody will always think that they can, can do it better, but all you can do is put your right foot forward and, uh, and give it your best shot. And yeah, Thanks for your time, Mitch. I'm not around the, uh, the scene anymore, but I certainly watch every second of what's going on. I don't think you'll ever be lost to footy, Terry. I think you're absolutely t- you know, it's in your blood. So uh, thanks again, mate. Take care. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching in Clubland. A shout out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.